welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Hanel. He's an economist, a prolific author of Participatory Economics for the People, by the People. Thank you so much for being with us, Robin. It's great to be with you again, Sylvia. When we look at history, you know, we can see some patterns of empires. And the one we are living today is not one that should surprise us. Empires try to conquer more territory, and often this has been done to force. But what is concerning, uh, perhaps for my audience and for most people, is how deadly a moment we are facing with the crisis of climate change, and yet more resources are being devoted to war and exacerbating that crisis. How do we conceptualize this moment, and how do we move out of this quagmire? I do think sometimes, you know, as we get older, um, some of our faculties diminish, but but hopefully we also can become a little wiser. And in my advancing age, I tend to look at humanity, you know, in a very big, big picture and sort of marvel at ourselves, you know, as a species. And I think that that's one way to look at what's going on, that any objective view, and this is what the climate scientists are providing us. They're providing us an objective view about just where we are, you know, in the race to avoid cataclysmic climate change. It will it will virtually change how habitable the, the you know planet Earth is for for human and other species. That if you take any sort of objective look at that, this is the overriding danger of the moment. This is something that humanity needs to arise to a challenge that's you could almost say is like a challenge that we've never faced before. And then the question is, well, but why do we seem so utterly unable? to do that. And when I look, what I see is, well, because somehow we are so wrapped up in all sorts of other conflicts, dilemmas, and problems of our own creation for the most part, that we keep getting distracted, you know, from from the major threat at hand. Clearly, nuclear war is a major threat. We could end civilization as we know it if we allow ourselves to go to nuclear war. And the situation in the Ukraine, um, you know, is one where people like Noam Chomsky are trying to tell us, you know, that once again, just like with the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, you know, this is one way that humanity can end life as we know it for all of us. Still, what has happened is that we are being distracted by all the other things that are going on. And I don't mean to belittle the problems, but it really is true that Anybody standing back would say, is, is the human species, are they the proverbial lemon? Are they just blindly marching off a cliff and have no idea that that's what they're doing and no capability of preventing themselves from doing it? So I do think that climate change has risen to that level of importance. And the big picture is, what on earth can we do? to refocus our attention on addressing this before it's too late. And that does mean prioritizing it and not being distracted. 
Yeah. And if you look at everything else that's going on, um, in some ways, it's a way to argue, fight, squabble, and put energy into into other issues. Um, and all that does is mean that you know the disaster is coming one day closer in terms of climate change. When the United States is investing $53 billion so far in the war in Ukraine, while some millions of people in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East are literally facing starvation, while millions in North America are literally one paycheck from being on the street, while you have infrastructure that is collapsing, you know, bridges and levees, and while we're facing in, you know, un unimaginable fires in California. Here in British Columbia, we had 350 fires in 2021, and 2022 is proven to be very hot already. So um, clearly, there is a path that they're following. And when the media reminds us constantly that it's more important that we maximize our profits, right? And keep us in a way disembodied, disconnected, dysfunctional in our consumerism and going as if every day is the same as yesterday and nothing nothing else is happening. So that that's a problem, not not just a political problem, but a systemic problem of blindness, a systemic problem of constantly uh, indoctrinizing people in the doctrine of domination. You know, we are more interested, well, the U.S. as an empire is more interested in proving its might and presence and conquering more territory than in ensuring that there is food available for millions of people, than ensuring that there is proper education and health in this country. So as an economist, you track how the money gets uh, not only reproduced, but also spent. In past, we've seen that after World War II, World War, you know, um, there is expenses that needs to be covered, right? Those things have to, someone has to pay for them. And usually it's the taxpayers. And there's taxation forms that have been tested and proven and we know that one way of taxation that has been po very popular is to make the people who are the poorest, the ones who are making the least, pay for those things. So can we talk a little bit about what we must brace ourselves for in the wake of all these expenditures that are being sent abroad and someone's going to pay for them? But the way to think about this is to think about what we are spending on and who we're collecting the taxes from to pay for it. And the first thing that you mentioned is, I mean, ever since World War II, the United States, I mean, just the United States, if you take a look at the amount of money that the United States spends on its military budget, I mean, I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but compared to every other nation, we spend two or three times more per you know of 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 what we're spending as a nation on the military budget compared to everybody else. That military budget, the primary purpose of it is is to maintain our sort of imperial advantages globally, and this is something that's been going on since the end of World War II. And every time, every time you know there there's a there's a step in the direction of sort of asking, does this make any sense at all? Is this really the way to peace? 
you know, to spend this much more than everybody else is spending. And when we spend that much more, part of the effect of that is it then causes other countries to have to spend more um, in order to sort of respond to our overspending on the military. So the U.S. is singularly responsible for having launched, you know, an escalation of military spending priorities for humanity, you know, for going on for my entire lifetime. For my entire lifetime, that's what's been going on. And, and that's, that's one part of the problem. Um, and that's also why you hear, well, but we don't have any money to spend, you know, on addressing climate change. We don't have any money to spend on building an entirely new infrastructure that's based on renewable energy sources rather than fossil fuels. So all the other priorities, you know, go begging um, because we have overspent, you know, as a country, the United States, on something that, yes, to, to, to preserve our imperial privileges and advantages globally has never really been to the benefit of the majority of the population in the United States. Now look at the other side. The other side is, okay, so we have this huge problem about spending on the wrong thing. And we have a huge need for rapid spending on what really actually is a threat to humanity, which is changing our entire energy system and infrastructure so that it is not based on fossil fuels before it is literally too late. Then the question becomes, well, where do we raise money in for, to spend on anything in the United States? Just as the fossil fuel industry you know, has done everything it could to prevent us from moving off of fossil fuels before it's too late and pursuing a path to renewables. The wealthy in the United States, they have their major concern, what they spend more of their time on than anything else is to figure out ways not to, not to have to pay taxes themselves. So the other huge you know, trend that you can, that you can measure um, over the past 40 years is just how much less the wealthy people in the United States are paying of our taxes and therefore how much more ordinary people who can ill afford to pay taxes have been forced to pay. Now, what's actually happened is that the amount of taxes that the very wealthy in the United States have been paying, this is both corporate taxes and individually and individual taxes. The amount of taxes that the very wealthy have been paying and you know has shrunk considerably. They have relentlessly waged that campaign. They've used their ability to finance election and pay for politicians to get them to do this for them. On the other hand, they have <clears throat> income distribution has gotten to the point in the United States that the bottom 40% you can't, you can't even get any taxes from them. That's how little they've been left with. So it is sort of the lower middle class and the middle class that have been forced to pay the taxes that the very, very poor can't pay in the United States anymore, and the wealthy have managed to weasel out of paying. And that produces a situation where the bulk of the population in the United States, their instinctive reaction to any proposal to pay, you know, to increase taxes to pay for things like building new infrastructure, addressing climate change, addressing poverty. Their reaction is, but I'm already overstrapped. I'm already overtaxed. And there's some truth to that. 
but it's because of the distribution and what's happened to who's paying and who's not paying taxes in the United States. What what have we learned and what do we need to pay attention now that we are facing yet another serious depression in, in the economic system since 2008? We have not recovered from the economic collapse that we saw. Well, yeah. Was there ever a time in U.S. history when the taxation system seemed to be getting more sensible and more fair? Adequate taxation collecting enough money to spend for the public goods we really need, such as redoing our infrastructure before we destroy humanity, you know, and the planet and humanity. Um, so collecting adequate taxes and collecting it fairly. Have we ever done a better job of that in the past? Yes. First of all, I mean, the United States pioneered the idea of an income tax. So I mean, going back to the early 20th century, the country that said, well, we really have to tax people's income and, you know, people with higher incomes need to be paying more taxes. So progressive income taxation, you know, is something that was pioneered originally in the United States. And if you take a look at the New Deal era and you take a look at even in the 1950s, what percentage of taxes were being paid by corporate, you know, out of corporate profits? People who look at this will point to the Eisenhower era and they say, well, what was, you know, what was the percentage taken out of taxes of the very, very wealthy and corporations? And we did that. So it's not that this is something that's impossible. It's all about political power. It is all about political power. And what has happened is that on the taxation front, the bad guys, the wealthy, the corporations and the wealthy and wealthy individuals and families in the United States have waged a relentless and successful campaign to make sure that they're not paying the taxes and that somebody else is instead. And there's no reason that that has to continue. That's all a question of political power in our own nation's history. We don't have to look to Scandinavian economies and say, well, there are some examples of capitalist economies that do tax an appropriate amount to pay for public services. And they're paying for a lot of really good, useful public services because they don't have huge military budgets. We don't have to look to those countries, you know, to see adequate and fair systems of taxation. We can look to our own history when there was a time when even in the United States, we did a much better job on that subject. In the end is the capitalist system particularly this neoliberal form of capitalism that we now have. Is this a system that, that ill serves humanity and is ultimately going to continue to be in conflict, you know, with preventing climate change and protecting the environment in adequate ways, as well as, is it the best system, the only system available, you know, for, for organizing people's economic activities, allowing people to have democratic decision-making power over, you know, their economic lives, compensating people fairly? No, I've long argued and believed that some form of democratic socialism, I think of it as also not just democratic socialism, but a truly participatory economy, is well within human capabilities, and everything points to the fact that humanity needs to move in that direction as rapidly as possible. So I think that's also true. But in the here and now, we're facing, you know, incipient fascism 
I don't know whether you watched, I mean, you're, you're in Canada. You might not have watched the January 6th hearings last night. I'm watching them praying, praying that somehow these hearings will help us forestall the possibility, you know, of a Republican Party that has become the Trump Party, not the old traditional Republican Party, from taking over Congress, you know, in a matter of months here in the United States and paving the way for a second Trump presidency. Really the demise of any form of representative democracy in the United States in the beginning of autocratic rule. We, we, know, we know what autocratic rule looks like. You know what it looks like in history and you know what it looks like right now. It looks like Putin in Russia. You know, it looks like Orban in, 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 in Hungary. And the question is whether the most powerful military, you know, country on the planet you know, is soon going to descend into that kind of political system and rule here in the United States. And, and I would also say it also looks like Biden in Venezuela. It also looks like Obama in Libya. It also looks like, you know, Obama in Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, it's, it's not just that you need a new political democracy in the United States. Is that whether you choose Coke or Pepsi, we're going to get warmongering because it doesn't seem like your military industrial system is in time going to be dismantled, whether it's a Democratic Party or a Republican. What many people have said that at least Trump didn't declare open war on anyone. So, you know, that's something to keep in check as well. What I, You know, uh, Sylvia, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and one of the reasons I love your show is that it... It focuses first and foremost on Latin America. There's no sadder part, you know, of American foreign policy than U.S. imperial policy with regard to Latin America. And nothing is more depressing than the fact that the Obama administration turned out not to turn over a new lease, turned out not to do something that I don't I mean, I don't even want to pretend that Franklin Roosevelt really did you know, implement a good neighbor policy toward primarily Mexico at that time, but toward Latin America in general. I, I don't want to pretend that the Roosevelt administration and, and the good neighbor policy really was the U.S. turning over a new leaf and abandoning the Monroe Doctrine, which says, you're our sphere of influence, we rule. But clearly the Democratic Party has been nothing but disappointing. Obama was disappointed. We all were hoping that there would be a change, a noticeable change in U.S. policy toward Latin America during the Obama eight years. There were eight years to do it, and he did not do it. He did just the opposite. And there is no doubt that that is exactly what Biden is doing again, as reflected with, you know, in the in the recent, you know, OAS meeting, you know, held in, in L.A., that that's just more evidence that there is no change. There's no change in U.S. foreign policy with regard to Latin America in particular <clears throat> with, the, with, with the Biden administration. So I am completely on board with you about that. And, 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 and I really appreciate the fact that your show keeps pointing that out. 
your work has focused on what an economic system by the people for the people could look like. And, you know, I know that much of it has been modeled on some of the changes in um, social movements in Venezuela, the history that, you know, Cubans have charted for us in Latin America is well noted among the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact of communal councils and recognizing the power with that society can gain when people, ordinary people, organize and unite and envision a path for themselves. And, and let me just try and put this into a broad context. The immediate task is to prove that we are not like lemmings and about to march ourselves off the cliff. If we succeed in doing that, if we don't succeed in doing that, there is nothing left. If we, if, if, if we succeed in doing that, the question becomes, well, are we humans capable of essentially seizing our positive potentials and learning the lessons of history about how we should not organize our economic affairs, that we should not organize our, our economic affairs in a system that allows a tiny minority to own the means of production and everybody else has to go work for them. And I think of it almost as going back in time. We need to go back in time and think about the early socialists at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. What was it that they envisioned? What was it that they wanted instead of the very sort of rapacious capitalism of the turn of the 20, you know, as the 20th century opened? And the answer in my mind is they wanted people, they wanted workers to govern themselves, and they wanted workers and consumers to plan together. There's a very intricate interrelationship between all the things that some people, workers are producing and who's consuming them, and many workers spend, are producing things that are needed by other workers. So all this needs to be coordinated. All this needs to be coordinated sensibly. It needs to be coordinated democratically and fairly. And the question is, well, is that, is that truly possible? Well, in the 20th century, there were people who said, well, we're going to do it with central planning in the Soviet economy, or we're going to do it with central planning in China, Maoist China. And that turned out to be wrong. That turned out to be sort of an attempt to build alternatives to capitalism that were not the right answer. But I think that the right answer really was what early but what I call them this, and this is what they call themselves, this is what everybody else calls them, the libertarian socialist vision, you know, was the right answer for humanity. But the problem is that at this point in time, we need to get a lot more clear about, well, how do you actually do that? And I think there was a lot of naivete about how simple will it be for humans to take sensible control of their own economic activities and coordinating them and planning them together. That's not as easy as people initially thought. And we need to improve the quality of our thinking about how it is that that can actually be done. And, and I think that the Bolivarian socialists, you know, in Venezuela, they looked at Cuba and said, no, you took that, your, your planning system, you adopted it from the Soviet Union. 
And just like the one in the Soviet Union, it isn't the right answer. We're not that interested in it. They tried to look at other ways to do things. And now political circumstances and international circumstances have basically brought that experiment you know, to a halt for the time being. Um, but I do think that that is the future for humanity. And I think that one of the tasks is we all need to think and work harder and think more clearly about how it is you go about doing that rather than just leaving things to markets or believing that some sort of essentially planned system you know, is going to work out for the best. Because it didn't and it won't. Um, and there needs to be a democratic alternative of planning. And I do think slowly that there is progress in terms of people thinking along these lines. I'm very encouraged right now. Um, there are two websites, two different websites that are very active right now where people are talking about, you know, concrete ways that you can do all this. Um, one is called www.realutopia.org. Um, and another one is called www.participatoryeconomy.org. These are two websites that are absolutely filled with discussion forums and articles and essays and chapters of books that are going into concrete details, examining, well, where did things not work out well in the past? How could we make this decision in a democratic and efficient way? How can we be sure people don't have to spend inordinate amounts of time arguing and debating with one another? Because you don't have inordinate amounts of time. You've got to organize this so it's so it's something that that ordinary people can do, you know, without spending 24 hours in a meeting, you know, seven days a week. So I, I do see progress on this front. It's all a question of a race against time. We're a race against time in terms of of preventing climate change. We're in a race against time in terms of figuring out how to do our economic, you know, organize our economic relations in a more sensible, productive, democratic, efficient, and fair way um, before various calamities sort of beset us. That's where we are yeah. at a particularly dangerous moment at this time. What inspires you that we can turn it around? Humans can do terrible things, and we have. Humans can do wonderful things, things that, that are truly inspiring. And you could see that going on every day, everywhere, both things. When I get depressed and discouraged, I also look and see that there is a tremendous positive potential in humanity and that it's always been there and it always will be there. And we just have to harness it we need to unleash it. We need to facilitate it. We need to protect it. We need to expand that. We need to expand that part of who we are. It's always simply about whether or not we make it happen. That's beautiful. You know, I, I always love talking with you. And um, for people who have yet to discover your wonderful work, how can they access your books? There's some recent books. Um, Rutledge published Democratic Economic Planning almost a year ago now, in 2021. That book is the most comprehensive sort of presentation of all of the proposals that we've come up with and sort of an explanation of them um, for how we might go about you know, organizing a desirable economy. But that book is in parts 
you know, aimed at professional economists, people who are trained economists or have a decent amount of economic training. A book that AK Press is publishing and will be out in a month or two is simply called A Participatory Economy. And that book covers all of the new suggestions, concrete ideas we have, you know, proposed about how to organize reproductive labor, how to make investment planning and education planning and environmental planning and international economic planning more democratic, efficient, and fair, but addressed to the sort of the non-economist audience, addressed to to activists, anybody who is sick with sick of capitalism but wants to know what's the alternative. Is there really an alternative? So that book is coming out in a couple of months. Um, AK Press is publishing that. And then the two websites that I just referred to, participatoryeconomy.org and realutopia.org, those two websites are really treasure troves of information, materials, discussion forums about any and all of these ideas. And, and that's where I would tell people to go first and foremost, to those two websites. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, and I hope you're feeling better. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios, and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com.